Thank you. That was beautiful. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Little fireworks there to accent my well wishes. Um, yeah, Happy Mother's Day, sincerely. Uh, what could possibly ruin Mother's Day? Yeah, just about anything, right? <laughs> Bad hair day, uh, the kids, no kids. I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Samuel. I'd like to read the first two verses. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Hannah longed for a child. Her dream was a son. Do you have a personal longing this morning? A dream unfulfilled that perhaps darkens or clouds Mother's Day? I hope you take it to the Lord in prayer. But in saying that, I'm aware that if it's been a strong desire in your life, a heart's desire, maybe even of the stature of a dream, You've been praying already. I've found that when a personal longing, a heart's desire for something right and good, when, when there's that personal longing and we're bringing it to the Lord in prayer, that personal longing can become the main fo focus of our relationship with God. How does it affect your devotion to God when the Lord has yet to fulfill the desire of your heart? How does it affect your faith, your trust, your confidence in Him when He has yet to give you the desire of your heart to fulfill that dream? Disappointment can become a source of doubt and distrust. God, why aren't you answering my prayer? Are you my ally or are you my opponent? 
Sometimes we begin to search our own hearts. We begin to number our failings, our sin, our unworthiness. Pretty soon that heart's desire that becomes the focus of our relationship with God can become a source of great hardship. In fact, when we bring our desires to Him, we, as it were, kind of emphasize that longing and it heightens the sense of delay. Battles of desire can intensify when we draw close to God. It could have been a Mother's Day, but it was after one of the worship services and I was down here uh, for anybody and on any subject that someone might want to to pray with me. And a, a young wife came forward and she was composed and courage was written on her faith but as I took her hand and looked into her eyes all of that just collapsed into tears crawling down her face and she was in the throes of great discouragement because she wanted so much to have a child You can hurt very deeply with a person and you can pray most sincerely but the environment of her heart, her outlook, her attitude is something that we can try to lift, to give perspective but ultimately it comes down to the way we manage those things with the Lord. What we think of Him. Whether we really trust Him. Is He that providential creator who cares for me? Those are the kinds of questions that rattle us. In 1999, it was, um, it was a friend, Jesse. Uh, we had first become friends. He was, he was a, a student when I taught at the college level. I also caught it, taught at the graduate level, so as he kind of worked his way up, I, I had more classes with him at that level. Uh, he needed a mentor, so I became his mentor. Um, I was there when he got married, um, Pam, and then the births of Bo and Hannah. And he moved to Oregon, and he was pastoring a church there. And it was uh, after church on one day after he waved to, to Pam and the kids that he was in a circle and they actually heard sirens rushing by and they stopped in that meeting that he had stayed behind to conduct to pray and they were praying for his wife and children who had died instantly in a car accident after church on the way home. I immediately went to Oregon to be with Jesse. I was at both services and involved in both, both in Oregon and in California. I spent a week with him. He took me out to the gravesite where he had picked out a gravestone and there his family would be buried. 
It was hard. He didn't talk a lot. I didn't know how to help him. Man, I wanted to. I wanted to be there for him in some significant way. And I just felt so clumsy and awkward and in the way most of the time. But I just stuck by him. At the gravesite, after he showed it to me, he was silent and we were just kind of reading. what we saw with our eyes, as it were. And then he spoke and he said to me, John, he says, I know this is hard for you too, but he says, I got to tell you, if God would grant me my prayer, I would die and be with my, ch my wife and children. That's what I want more than anything else. Life holds no flavor no color, no scent. I just want to die and be with my wife and children. And then he paused for a bit. And I didn't know what to say. I was well, how do how do I And then he said he said, John, I know this is hard, but he said, if God would grant that wish, I would run right past Jesus into the arms of my family. You know, sometimes there are things that are so real to us because of our humanness, it's very hard for us to live the life of faith because it can involve not only our thinking and our our history of experience and acquired wisdom, but it can challenge us in ways that we're not yet prepared to face. And some things run so deep, it's very hard to trust God in the ways that we need to trust Him at times, such as those. Such was such a time for Jesse. But the amazing thing is, is that in three years, he was a wiser, stronger man, more compassionate by his own admission. He still missed his family terribly, but God brought another woman into his life, and I, Shelley and I were a part of his remarriage, and he has thrived and prospered in ways as he's gone on into serving the Lord in the pastorate. I don't know that God creates those things just to teach us, but in a broken world where these things occur, God superintends them, and he, you may not like this, but I always think of God as the master of jujitsu. No matter what force comes this way, he uses it to his good and our good too. And God used that in profound ways in Jesse's life, just as with that young woman, we prayed and it wasn't but a month later that she was praising the Lord because she received the news that she was pregnant. Sometimes we can't measure the time that it will take for God to answer our prayers, but we need to understand that when it's hard to trust Him, the thing we want most can become so strong that we begin to believe that we will not 
fully be ourselves unless we get it on our terms and in our way. Let me repeat that. Sometimes our desires, our dreams are so big and so strong that we just don't believe we can truly be who we are supposed to be or meant to be or our best to be unless we get what we desire. It's hard to wait on the Lord to trust him and to endure. But hard things teach us to trust him. Hard things help us learn self-surrender to God's very best. It can also cause us to accept his providence. Providence is kind of a highfalutin $5 word for the way we describe God's wise and loving ordering and management of the affairs of life for the benefit of his beloved and for the benefit of all. In fact, on Providence, C.S. Lewis in his work, The Weight of Glory, wrote, we are not necessarily doubting that God will do his best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. Well, we'll see as we look at Hannah's dream and a dream that is burst, a dream that is broken, a dream that actually sours, as it were, if dreams can sour, um, because of delay, because dreams didn't go the way she had hoped. I'd like to read verses 3 through 8 with you. Now this man, that is Elkanah, used to go up year by year from the city to worship, his city, to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts and Phinehas at the time, uh, excuse me, at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. And by the way, in Samuel, uh, Eli's sons are worthless priests. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Panina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. The sin sacrifice was always consumed. There was nothing left over. But the thanksgiving offering was divided between the giver and the Lord. And so what was left over to the one who had presented that Thanksgiving offering, he would divide with his family. And so he divides it with his two wives, Penina, her sons and daughters, and with Hannah. But as it says here, to Hannah, he gave a double portion. That's very important. He gave a double portion because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. Note that word, though. In the next verse, verse 6, her rival. Who is her rival? That would be Panina. Panina has become her rival. Why has she become her rival? She has become Hannah's rival because Elkanah prefers her. He loves her more than Panina. He gives her a double portion. 
which the firstborn child, the firstborn son, deserves. And it doesn't go to Panina. He gives it to Elkanah. And that's Panina's share. So she becomes Hannah's rival. This, uh, there's a quick lesson here. Uh, don't marry two women. <laughs> or don't marry two men. Verse 7. So it went... Oh, And verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. To, to anger her, to upset her. Why? Now note these words. Note this word, because. Not though the Lord closed her womb. Because the Lord closed her womb. Those are in two verse, one verse, then the next verse. It tells us why Elkanah that he loves her, though she can't bear children. He loves her. That's very important to understand. Panina, she's bitter. She has borne him children. But because Hannah can't, and he prefers Hannah, he loves her more, he gives her the portion that should be going to Panina and her family, she resents it. Because, so she provokes her. Why? Because she can't bear children. The Lord has closed her womb. This will become very important, and I want you to appreciate it. And so, verse 8 Oh, verse 7, so, so it went year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. That's Panina. She would vex. She would be her rival. Therefore, because of that, Hannah cried. She wept and would not eat. And verse 8, Elkanah, her husband, said to Hannah, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So here's, let me give you the dynamic. Let me help you to appreciate what's going on. Hannah's dream, she marries a godly man, Elkanah. He's a Levite. We know this from First uh, uh, Chronicles. Chapter 6. He, he's of the Levites. And, and we can see even from this passage when it says year by year, year after year. He is devoted to God. He goes up to the holy place. He takes a sacrifice. He takes his family there. But nothing is more important to a man. And this is why the passage starts this way. How did it start? It gives us the report of the generations and where Elkanah falls. He's fifth generation. Do you know why he's fifth generation? Because he was born to his father and to his father's father and his father's father's father and so forth. He's fifth generation and now he has to produce a sixth generation. 
Back then, a man's status, his honor, but most of all, his family's name, lineage, heritage, and literal survival depended upon a son. Hannah couldn't give him a son. And so, what did he do? He kind of followed the culture, I believe. The culture of that time is the culture that we're exposed to in the book of Judges, which continually says they did what they thought was right in their own eyes, not in God's eyes. I think Elkanah followed what was cultural, culturally acceptable not only in Israel but all their neighbors. And so what he did, by what he felt was necessity, he went out and got a second wife. He brought Panina into the marriage and Panina was a baby factory. To put it bluntly, she produced child after child after child. And with each birth of a child, Hannah's heart sank. Panina's stock soared. Hannah's sank. In the eyes of the community, Panina's a rock star. And even though, even though Elkanah loves Hannah, his love is not greater. Her feelings don't matter more than producing a son. And so he continues to respect and honor her. But when we get to verse 8, when Hannah, who's depressed, and she has no appetite. She's sad. Every time they go up to the feast, Panina with all her children, all the laughter and the chatter around the meal, she pushes it away because she's not whole within that society. She's not complete. And when you think of it, Elkanah, think of the indignity of having to share Elkanah with another woman. One who seems to provide everything that the family needs in terms of status, honor, and survival in those boys and all the chatter that goes with it. And even though Elkanah gives her a double portion, what's she going to do with it when she has no appetite? When tears are her food. And so Elkanah, bless his heart, I can see so much of myself in him. He comes to Hannah and he says, Hannah, Hannah, listen. Don't I make up the difference? Hannah, you need to realize, I don't expect you to have kids now. There's no pressure. Can't you hear the children? I've got my sons. Can't it just be us? Can I be more than, worth more than 10 other boys? That's what he says to her. What does that tell me? It tells me that her dream has been blown up by a vengeful second wife who can do everything Hannah can't. And let me just add, this is really important. I see this back in that verse where it says, her rival provoked her because the Lord closed her womb. 
Now, that might have been a fact, but the fact that it says it just like that tells me that Panina was raising the question of faith and God's love. And Panina was saying, in effect, Hannah, God loves me more than you. He favors me more than you. Elkanah may favor you, but he favors me more than he favors you. And then on top of it now, Elkanah, when he talks to her like that in verse 8, he's pretty much saying, you know what, I've moved on. I've got my kids. You've got to get over this. In other words, emotionally, he's become detached from the greatest need in her heart and life. And so what does she do? We see that in verses 9 through 11. After she had eaten and drunken in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple. It was the tabernacle that had been kind of made more permanent there in Shiloh. It was not what we would think of as a stone temple, but a tabernacle made permanent. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Have you ever prayed like that? And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Let me tell you what I think is going on here. And I think it's something that's important for us. You know, I mentioned how a desire of our heart can become so important that we just, we can't imagine or we come to believe that we can't be who we are really supposed to be unless the Lord answers or grants that request the way we desire and hope it will be fulfilled. I think that's very true, but you can see how that can really make difficult your relationship with the Lord because the Lord may be saying, you know what, I know you think that's the best for you, but I have something better. And I can't give you what's better until you're willing to turn over what you think is best for you to me. And I think that is exactly what happens here in these verses. You see verse 16? Let's look at that for a second. Because while she's praying this vow, can you imagine, can you picture her? She's weeping, she's just... And Eli, the priest, comes to her and he mistakes her condition, her her appearance and the moving of her lips, he mistakes her for being drunken. And she says, I'm not drunk. I haven't even touched any strong drink. What you hear me saying, verse 16, is the deep pain and the vexation of my life. And notice it says, all the while, or something until now. In other words, all this time, not just now in which you've been coming, but 
in which you see me, but all this time, this has been the nature of my prayer. I have been vexed. I have been in deep sorrow, and out of that, I beseech the Lord. That's what she's telling the priest. And he says, may the Lord grant your prayer. And then also, uh, in verse 19, that prayer is granted, and it is explained in, at the end of the verse, the Lord remembered her. So what has happened here? Let me bring together real quick a couple of things. When, when, in, verse, um, when in verse 6, Panina is called her rival, that's a word that occurs twice in that verse, once in the next verse, and in verse 16, and is often translated vexed, or irritated, or upset. That's why the word provoke translates it, or words of that kind. It is a word that is used of Panina in Hannah's life, but it is a word that is used of, of and to describe Israel's enemies when they taunt Israel in defeat. When Israel goes down to defeat, for whatever reasons, their enemies provoke and taunt them. They trash talk them, just like people do in the NBA. And what does that mean? That means, yeah, I'm superior, I've got victory. But in Israel's time, it involved raising the question, where is your God now? And that's what Panina, I would suggest to you, has been causing Hannah to question. And we see in this prayer, see, she says, I've been praying out of this vexation, right? Because this has been going on year after year a parade of her infertility and trash talk of Panina. And she mentions that. This has been my plight. But verse 9 has changed all that because in verse 9, she says, remember your servant. I'm going to make a vow. I'm going to turn over to you, Lord. I'm going to give up what I feel is so essential, the most important desire and dream, the dream that if answered will make me the person that I believe I'm supposed to be. I'm giving it up to you. Because if you'll grant me a son, I'll give him back to you. And notice how she said, remembered? Remember your servant? At the end of verse 19, after the priest blessed her and said, may it be to you as you have prayed, she feels better. She believes God through the priest. She takes it to heart. She trusts him. It changes her attitude. She goes back and she eats. Elkanah and her have a child, and it says God remembered her. In chapter 2, I hope you'll read it, the first 10 verses, is her song, a beautiful song of triumph to Lord Almighty, or Lord Sabaoth, who is the Lord by name mentioned at the tabernacle or temple of Shiloh. It is a beautiful answer of praise and song that elevates God 
and if you will, rehearses how God has been her warrior in her battle, and that's a battle with Penina. That's a battle over God's vindication, not only of her faith, but of his faithfulness, and she celebrates it in beautiful language. A thousand years later, another mother, a young one named Mary, will give birth to a son, Jesus, and in Luke, she will sing a song, and a lot of that song will be composed of the language of Hannah's song of praise in 1 Samuel chapter 2. When uh, I would like to uh, have my mother here today. Tomorrow is her birthday. She'll be 90. Uh, but my mother died at 45 in 1974. I just, just, I wasn't even two weeks, 21 years of age. Shelley and I hadn't even been married, but less than a month. Um, maybe it goes without saying, but my mom did not want to die. She fought with everything she had. She had brain cancer. She went through a lot. She fought to the bitter end. The interesting thing, my dad had left, and I know some of you know this, he had, he had walked away from the marriage. In fact, when I got home and, and mom was standing in the dark hallway, that's a bit of a story I won't go into, but she greeted me in the dark in tears and she said, your father tells me he doesn't love me anymore and he's leaving. And because, well, I was kind of drunk at the time, well, I was drunk at the time, and I was trying to hide and just slithered by her, you know, hey, Mom, as she would say, things will look better in the morning. That's what I said to my mom. Can you believe that? I wish I could go back and live that, relive that, do it all differently. But I was far from the Lord at that time. But I watched her, how she handled herself. She taught piano on the side to supplement our family. She went back to school, got her teacher's degree, and started teaching it in elementary school. She became a second grade teacher. In fact, while she was battling cancer, she received a notification of her tenure. So that meant she wanted to return to teaching. She loved teaching those children. And she hoped that she would be able to. That was news. It was, in effect, saying, we're keeping you. You're a keeper. She had people say, well, if you have enough faith. She had enough faith. She had more than enough faith. She said things to me in my unbelieving way, uh, in my unbelief. She said things to me that just, stick with me to this day that we're so profound of her faith. But one thing that stands supreme of those things is that she told me, she goes, you know, if I die, I just want the Lord to use it in some way. I will happily die, she told me, if your father will come to Christ. 
I don't know if that desire was answered. I certainly wouldn't say that's the reason that she died. But I hope she knows that it was not that prayer, as it were, that was answered, but another prayer because I came to Christ through her faith. The fact that she believed God, that she never gave up on God, even if she doubt, had doubts about how God was going to use her life or whether it was going to be meaningful. We see that in Hannah. I see that in my mother. I can see that in you. And I, I want you to know this morning that whatever my legacy is, and I really don't, please don't, maybe it's too highfalutin to use the word legacy, but I just want you to know whatever my legacy is, the, the product of my life, that is my mom's legacy. Because I came to faith in Christ through her faith, through her life, Moms and dads, everybody, man, woman, child, you will produce a legacy in Christ that will reach beyond your wildest imaginations and your deepest desires for which you pray to touch the lives of others in ways that you cannot imagine if you will turn your desires over and supplant them, put in their place the desire of God's will for your life. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray. I just want to encourage you. Just keep going to the Lord. He'll take care of you. He loves you. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for moms. We thank you for dads. We thank you for children. We thank you for friends. Really, you make everything taste better, look better, feel better, smell better. We're not in heaven, but we know heaven in our hearts because of you, Lord. And we praise and thank you. We thank you for moms. We thank you for some of the most beautiful qualities of life that they represent. We know it. We can recognize it because of you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, God bless you. Happy Mother's Day.